Welcome to Ogle of Nanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Bolacon Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Series 5. Revisiting Mythical Women. Episode 2. Revisiting Maka. The story of Maka. Near Armagh is the green mound of mysterious Awanmaka. This is the story of its naming. In my mind, I still hear the rhythmic drumming of many hooves, the thrumming of the autumn rains, the soughing of breathing beasts, wind in the pasture grass, flashes of colour, crimson and gold of goods and buyers, the gleam of sudden sun on red alder. Oh, but I remember the woman. I remember the sudden vision of her as she came to end my loneliness. I remember the step of her through long grass, the standing of her in the early morning, a silhouette of youthful joy on the hill's rim, and the poise and grace of her as she moved beneath my roof. She chose me, this beautiful stranger. She chose my house, my hearth, and my bed, creating a time of order and prosperity for me. She became the heart of my life. But she remained a stranger. For even as she carried our child, she would answer no questions, but bade me be content to hold safe this gift of life between us. Be still, she told me, for we have made together an echo of the land of promise. And for a while, its magic thrives here but it will last only as long as you do not speak of me. And I was content, but I was proud also, and my pride was my downfall. It was time for the Feast of Samhain, when all were summoned to the gathering place of Cahormac Nessa. This was a great feast of celebration, but now I was loath to leave my hearth and the woman whose birthing was so near. Yet... I would be on a lost if I should not attend, so I travelled to the king's feast with the words of the woman wrapping me close. Say nothing of me and our lives together. And I said nothing. I said nothing at the king's board, though all the champions boasted of their deeds and their goods. I said nothing. But that was before the racing of the chariots. When it was time for the king's horses to be shown before the assembly, oh, I could see that every praise word spoken had been well deserved. They were tall and glossy, the sun's beams flashing fire coal through their sleek coats. But they brought to my mind the supple limbs of the woman, their clear eyes, her deep wisdom, their wild manes, the rich flowing of her hair. As I watched them put to their paces, saw them running, all I could see was the beauty of the woman, and in my pride I spoke of her with words of great praise. I told of her grace and her grooming, the speed of her running. I cried out that she could race the world's wind and would surely leave behind the king's horses as leaves scattered by the wind. Cahur heard me and was angry at my boasting, so I was bound by the bonds of my words and the bonds of the king until the woman could be brought before the assembly and matched against the great horses to the testing of my words. 
And she came, of course, my beautiful woman. She came even though the time for her to give birth was so very close. When she heard that my life was forfeit until she could prove my boast, she set herself to the testing. And she ran. She ran as the clouds raced the hunter's moon. She ran as wind or water, as waves across sand. Her hair flowed, flooding around her. She ran until the horses were left far behind in her wake. Once she made circuit, carving the course of her running in the land, and then, with a try of triumph and loss, she fell. And triumph and loss it was indeed, for in gaining my freedom, I lost her forever. There, in that place, she gave birth to twins, one as dark as cloud shadow, the other as fair as the moon on water. No one aided her in her labour. No one dared. We watched in awe as she rose, holding the babies high for us to see. She stood tall, altered, mist-cloaked. Then she spoke. By your own law, you well know that the words of a woman in childbirth cannot be unspoken. Now I say to you that I am Maka. I have moved amongst you bringing prosperity and order, but you have used me ill. For your lack of pity this day I lay a noindon of weakness on you, at the moment when you most have need of strength. Yet the name I have given to this place I will not take back. Even in defeat, Owen Maka will live on in the glory of the teller of tales. Great will be the winning and the losing. But at the last, this land will still remember me. As we watched, shadow covered her and she was gone. But in the last of the twilight, it seemed to see the shape of a great mare, mane netting the new-lit stars. Then even the imagining was gone and I was alone. So Owen Maka was named and flamed with her blessing, as later it suffered her curse at the time of the great raid of the bulls. But I, Crumcrew, sit here in the ruins of memory and I dream. Perhaps the cheering of the warriors is no more than the carrying crawl of crows. But I am an old man, and dreams of Maka are dreams of glory. So welcome to the second of our revisits to our first series, Mythical Women. Today we're going to be taking a look back at the story of Macha, and in particular the texts and stories that connect her to the place she gave her name to, Evelyn Macha, Navenfort. Now it's always curious to listen to ourselves from three years ago, mm -hmm. you know, did I really say that? <laughs> or, uh, you know, do you agree with what we said then? Uh, and would we change the terminology that we used? <laughs> I think so. Now, in these revisits, we're recording some new notes and comments on the original episode. Now, you can either go and listen to the original episode and then come back to these notes, or just keep listening now and bear the notes in mind as you listen to that conversation. So... The story of Maha. Yeah, well, it was always one of my favourite stories. And I realised it was one of the first versions of an Irish story that I ever wrote for myself. Mm. Uh, you know, back in the days when I was doing story performances with the Harpists. Yeah, it is also, in many ways, responsible for you and me actually meeting. Yes, so it And is. getting in touch. Because <laughs> I had read some of what you'd written about Maha and about the story. And I wrote you a letter and you wrote me a letter. And mm. there was a bit of correspondence. Mm. And then I listened to the tape of your I, recording you, you of had the story. A bit of a shock, didn't you? I realised, 
oh, Chris is a woman. <laughs> I know, I think if you were sort of slightly hesitant about me writing yeah. stories about women from a woman's point of view, yeah. and oddly enough, I thought you were a woman of my own age, <laughs> shall we say somewhat mature. Yes. <laughs> and then I met this 20-year-old. I know, and I am now closer to <laughs> the age you were then. So that, that was really what kicked off our, our collaboration, and you know, it was a shared was, interest in this story. That was quite a long time ago, wasn't it? It yeah, was. Sort of back in the late 90s, I yeah. think. The version I wrote then, well, the version I've put together now, is a bit poetical, but it does still work. Mm. I know it appealed to me at the time because of the way Maka responds to her betrayal, yes. but there's so much more to it. There is, and when we went through it for the purposes of creating our podcast... I was very satisfied by the amount of material we got out of it and the amount that reflected early Irish society, mm -hmm. law, status and all of those things and the way they were so contained within a story that is otherwise considered just, if you like, a piece of literature. No, there's a lot to it. There is huge amounts. So how did we do with this episode? You know, what do we think about how we did that? <laughs> well, one thing I noticed that right at the opening, I referred to the Mucker story as an Iron Age story. Mm. Now, I know what I meant, but I think that does require clarification. Mm. What I was commenting on was not the origins of the story, but its classic heroic quality. Yeah. And in fact, this story is usually categorised as part of the Ulster cycle. Mm. And in fact, when I was going and checking up on its manuscript sources and so on, every site that I looked at, every catalogue, had it under the heading of Ulster cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, the oldest recension of the Maka story, which is the Noindan Ullad, the text that we referred to throughout mm -hmm. the episode, is from the Yellow Book of Lecan and a few other manuscript versions, but it does have a core of Old Irish language, mm -hmm. which is about 9th century. It'd be late Old Irish rather than early mm -hmm. Old Irish. So it's about 9th century. It does include some Middle Irish, but mm -hmm. again, like a lot of the stories within the so-called Ulster Cycle, it, it has both of those elements. It's very much of a similar date to the story of Moitura. It is, and in fact there is a version of it that uh, comes up in the same manuscript as mm. the, the Battle of Moitura, which is our entire season two. And you know, both these cycles, whether you call them the Ulster, the mythological cycle, they may have been written down in around the ninth century. Yeah. There's more than echoes of oral traditions, and these echoes clearly go right back into the iron even Bronze Age. I can find Bronze Age elements in these mm. stories. Some of them might even go to Neolithic, if you listen to what we said about <laughs> Shannon in our last these, revisit. These, orally, these stories are very old. Yeah. I, I mean, you can see that, 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 that certainly in the Iron Age settings, I'll still stick to this. I mean, just look at the chariots, the ornamentation. The horse bling. And you can, you can match them to actual archaeological examples, yeah. which are very similar. Obviously, descriptions of feasting halls and clothes You'd expect them to have later overlays, and mm. they do. Yes, yeah. You'd be surprised if they didn't. Exactly. Now, we did say in the original conversation about the story of Maka that even though it is conventionally put in with the Ulster cycle, that it does have an awful lot in common with what's called the yeah. mythological cycle. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. Yeah, yeah. that Maka in particular, it sort of has that straddling the two worlds feeling about it. You know, that the story itself seems yeah. to represent a shift from one way to another way. Now, we've been finding 
the traditional allocations of the four cycles. It's inaccurate and it's also grouping together stories which have a very different flavour to them. You know, the usual classification is to have the mythological cycle, which mm -hmm. includes Moitura and Mira and Aideen, things like that. Then you get the Ulster cycle, which is all the stuff circles the time. Then the cycle of kings, which is seen as kind of pseudo-historical. <laughs> very pseudo. Exactly, yeah. Uh, for example, the stories of Mungon would be put into that cycle. Um, yeah, which is incredible, really, because isn't they it? connect up with Bran and the Imrod. Exactly. And then uh, the final one is the, the Fenian cycle, the stories of Fionn and the Fianna, which are causing us even more problems and headaches. <laughs> but So you might have heard us in previous, in well, not previous episodes, later episodes, because mm -hmm. we're revisiting, talking about things like the Levergavala strand of stories. Mm -hmm. And we're actually deliberately trying to create our own categorizations or our own ways of describing these different story mm -hmm. strands because they're not cycles, they're not defined sets. This is a work in progress, though. Yeah, so. yeah, they're not sort of epic cycles mm. or sagas in yeah. quite the way that they at first seem. Exactly. They're all interconnected. Oh, yeah. Uh, and just because one's set in Ulster doesn't make it part of that particular cycle. Exactly, yeah. Um, hence, we've ended up with Brick Room, yeah. connected with the mythological. Mm. And, no, uh, and Dintianicus. We put it under Dintianicus yeah. because... We wanted to do it separately, exactly, but yeah. not part of the Ulster cycle. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's kind of artificial. Most yeah. of these well, categorizations are exactly. But if we ever come up with a definitive version, we'll put it on the blog. Oh, we certainly will. <laughs> Believe me, once we have cracked it, we will be telling everyone all that about take it. Some time. <laughs> but yes, if we occasionally use uh, phrases like "levergavala strand," yeah, we need to explain what we mean. Yeah, but it's because the traditional cycles just don't seem to fit when we're discussing the stories so patience please we're working on it <laughs> now this episode did establish one of our most regular themes mm. the central role of natural justice you know the truth of things that upholds order rightness fitness etc etc and in fact as we have compared the stories as we go along to other texts and particularly things like the law texts and the status texts we find a lot of correlation between them, as you would expect. But the status text particularly, they're full of all these sort of social hierarchies that we might find discomforting or, you know, slightly uncomfortable. Slightly rigid. Yeah. But what it's based on is an idea that there is an order and a rightness. What and is that, fitting. Yeah, what is fitting for each person according to their station in life. And their rights and responsibilities. Yeah, and it is that important balance between rights yeah. and responsibilities. The most visible form of this, especially in terms of story, is the fear of Lathavun, uh, which is sometimes translated as the king's truth yeah. or the king's justice. I mean, fear is literally truth, and Lathavun, Flath is nobility and so yeah. on. But it's this concept that if a king gives false judgments or speaks falsely or unjustly, then the land and the people will physically suffer consequences. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the kicking off points, if you like, for the story of Maitura, yeah. is that Bresh gives a false judgment. Yes, this concept must be upheld at all costs. Exactly, yeah. But in fact, even though we're used to the concept just as fear of Flathavan as it applies to kings, it applies all the way down the line. Mm. You know, it's only the sort of the pinnacle, if you like, yeah. of why 
everything has to be right so and although it comes across as that very uncomfortable the rich man at his mm. castle the poor man at his gate got, yeah. <laughs> made them high or lowly and ordered their estate it's <laughs> not that all norman sense yeah yeah of order it's something much much deeper yes in a way much more interesting yeah. in this episode i noticed that i referred to this concept of natural order as ma'at which of course is ancient egyptian mm. but it, it, it's the nearest i could get to what it meant at that time the ancient egyptian society was based on a very similar concept and uh, Ma'at is represented sometimes as a figure sometimes as a, a feather of truth mm. who generally is seen standing behind the king's throne or is represented as an image mm. connected with the pharaoh mm. or again when the, the soul is judged as a feather of judgment the feather yeah. of truth that the heart must balance again but it's not just telling the truth it's giving true judgments a balanced order that keeps the land safe yeah. and uh, abundant yeah. it's almost exactly the same mm. but it's still an ancient Egyptian term. Yes, yeah. We really needed to find a, a different term, which we now do. The term that we came up with was court. Uh, now, uh, we were recently asked online by someone about the derivation of the word court in linguistic terms, um, and we thought this is a good opportunity to discuss how we came to use this as a term, because it's one that, in a way, we've invented. And um, it was used all the time. Yes, but it was particularly when we were looking at the story of Maitura, which we felt was all about the disruption and re-establishment of this sense of order and balance and justness. And it came down to part of the name of the Dacta's harp was called Kethakur, uh, which was the justly angled square is how it's often mm. translated. But that idea of chord as something that could be uh, and this is linguistically so, something that can be physically balanced, mm. you know, a straight line or a, a 90 degree angle, something that is balanced, well proportioned, but that has an extended meaning that goes to this abstract sense of balance, which has that sense of justness, of order and rightness. Fittingness. Absolutely. What was fitting and what is due, you know, what is owed is due, as Mither which likes to say. Which is the heart of the justice. Exactly. What is owed is due exactly yeah and so again the fact the way that irish law is very much based on the idea of reparation and recompense you know you have to rebalance what is owed i think we just started using it because we wanted an irish term for the concept we didn't want to have to keep going back to egypt it's, it's also worth pointing out that there are so many other terms that mm. are used to mean something that's due something that's fitting something that's proper mm. But I think because cord, because we were discussing it in terms of mm. moitura, it became well, the term we chose. It's almost exactly the same as the image of the feather of truth. Mm. So really, if you were going to portray the king, the Irish chieftain, mm. you'd have to put the dagger's heart behind him. And in fact, that is the official seal of the Irish president. <laughs> it's a really basic concept. Mm. And I think that we didn't want to use, use the, the truth of the king because... Mm. That word refers to what will happen if the king breaks his word. Exactly. And the, the sense of core is so much broader. Exactly. And it applies to everyone and to every action. And there are, as you said, there's so many words. Mm. And also it's a concept that's just taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't have a sort of one single outside Technical word term. unless yeah. it belongs to the king. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I hope that makes it clearer. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the, the Maka story is just crammed full of examples of this, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, right from the beginning, when the woman enters Kronhu's house, what she's doing is putting everything right and doing the right things all the time. 
including that nice little detail of how she turns Deschel when she comes into the house. You know, it's all this indication that when she's there, there is court, there is yeah. rightness and balance. She's not just bringing physical order, like doing the washing up and making the fire. No. It's much deeper than that. Exactly, yeah. Maka is clearly another world personage. What she's doing is she's coming to bring the connection that will restore or re-establish Koya. Mm. And of course, this link to the other world is actually the source of this Koya. Yeah. Always. It's the, the fact that if you're linked to the other world, then this rightness is flowing. And if this link is lost, fitness, rightness, and so on that's lost as yeah. well one of the things that we discussed in the episode is the role of truth and truth speaking in core and the connection of the two worlds and at that sort of superhuman feat that maka does of winning a race against the king's horses she has to do that because her aim is to prove that Krum Khu was speaking the truth. Krum Khu is in a difficult position mm. I mean he's been told by the woman that he mustn't mention her mm. But he ends up in a situation where he cannot do anything else. Yeah, it is impossible. It's this completely conflicting obligations between the promise that he gave to the woman, which was kind of a, the deal about getting personal prosperity by not mentioning her. But then there's the social obligation toward not just the king, but the whole two us in terms of declaring his wealth, the source of his wealth and his status. Mm. And it is an so impossible doing his tax return. It is. And I thought in a way, you know, Cronkrew was breaking a gesh. Mm. But it's the king that really causes the problem, isn't it? It is. And I, I sort of felt quite satisfied, if you like, when we went through the story to find that actually the root of the real problem was the king and his complete completely over-the-top response that he wants Kronikud to prove the truth of his word or he'll die. And it's almost as like, you know, he's left something off his tax return yeah. and been sentenced to death for it. Exactly. It's that, that would ex- worry a lot of people, wouldn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. <laughs> and it's, it's that extreme, you know, and because it's that extreme, then extreme measures have to be taken yeah. and, and Mark has to race the bloody horses. So, yeah, it's this is a really clear example of the breach of fear cloth of it. And uh, there's even more, it's the abuse of a woman who is pregnant. Yeah. It's a particularly dangerous thing that will disrupt order very seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's particularly heinous. And, I mean, we also discussed, like, the, the gender is very important to this story because the woman's speeches during childbirth can't be oversworn. The betrayal is so extreme. You see, on a deep level, to do that to a pregnant woman, mm. deep down, it is you're affecting the future prosperity of the land. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you're you're risking the children that she's carrying. And so, yeah, that is basically mortgaging your future. Uh, uh, it's a strong story. It's a, uh, yeah. I also noticed that we used the term supernatural throughout the episode. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I think it was very cringe-worthy moments for well, both of us. It's just that, in this sense, we prefer the term other world. Yeah. And I think this is because the Irish other world is a very specific place with particular rules and particular customs. And I know... I think it really began to build up as we were working on the Imrol. Absolutely, yeah. I began to appreciate that this concept of the Irish Otherworld is so antipathetical to the classical underworld or the ethereal airy world of gods. Mm. It powerfully underlies all Irish mythology. It's yeah. that central. Exactly. And supernatural is just too 
general a term. Our other world has little in common with the way supernatural is generally used. Yeah, I mean, being an other world character or being in the other world, it has nothing to do with superpowers generally or divinity or omnipotence, immortality, no, anything it, like that. They may occur, but it's not the make or break point. Yeah, it's not It's not the central feature of the other world. I also find very important that the other world is neither a better world nor a worse world than this one. Yeah, and its personages are their ancestors, they're also culture heroes, mm. but more likely they're just people from another parallel existence. Mm. And okay, their land is beautiful, abundant and free from original sin. Yes. Um, it's not free from conflict. No. Both worlds seem to equally like a good scrap <laughs> yes uh, but the important thing is that if the link between the two worlds break down mm. both worlds suffer yeah yeah and that's really important i mean look at nera or aideen when they start digging up the mounds mm. or, or the other worlds become at long-term conflict or mm. disregarded mm. both worlds seriously suffer yeah yeah we used that term supernatural in the episode but what we were really getting at was one of our core themes about the power of truth and particularly the spoken truth and the mm -hmm. power of the word, mm -hmm. which of course then comes back to why the role of the poet is so important and why the poet and a poet king like Mungon is there to stand as the connector between this world yeah. and other worlds. They are the portal between the two yes. and what keeps the link open. Yeah. And as I say, if their truth is lost yes it's even more serious it is yeah. the truth of the king yeah <laughs> now another feature of the link between this world and the other world is the ways that you can cross between them and very often we've found that that happens through kind of animal transformation now in the maka story maka is not a horse goddess but she has characteristics in common with horses and being a horse or riding horse is one of the ways that you can get from one world to the other mm -hmm. i mean the classic sort of story of nia vanushin has to do with going from one world to the other on the back of a horse oh, and stay there yeah we had a very particular example of that in the pursuit of the gilla decker and his <laughs> horse <laughs> that ugly horse is a yeah. really strange psychopomp it is although birds are probably the most common they are the most common we find that the birds and particularly other world characters appearing in the shape of a bird or leaving in the shape of a bird like mither and aideen did and um, that's by far i'd say the most common but there's horses are in there as well mm-hmm and that's why we connected up Rhiannon in the podcast episode. Exactly. And that still stands. Oh, it certainly does, yeah. Also in this episode, uh, we discussed, for the first time really, the significance and the importance of the Oinach as a gathering and as fundamental to the running, the smooth running of Irish mm. society. It's often translated as a fair, but it's much more than that, isn't it? It has to do with... the things we talked about like tax returns where you make a public declaration of your wealth of your status and that in turn then will determine things like your honor price and also the value of your oath and the contracts that you can make it's all of this very public measuring and sharing and witnessing of what gives you your place in mm. society and of course we're talking about a pre-literate or a non-literate based society and so all of these important contracts and all of these important statements are entirely oral mm. and so they have to have specific witnesses they also have to have specific structures and if you like ritual performance that gives it the official seal and means that everybody recognizes that this is a binding contract 
So when you've got this oral-based society, you also get this performative element that grows up around contracts and around legal proceedings. And I've often wondered whether the whole story of my Torah could have been told at such a time mm. to, as it were, demonstrate the making and breaking of the group. You know, so exactly. It's as if time has been broken down, mm. everything's been reformed, mm. and now everything's right again. Yes. It's a renewal. I like this sense of performance, probably in the form of storytelling yes. at this period. Yeah. But in fact, you know, this is actually a really ancient and well-known concept, these assemblies. Yes. I mean, if you take the Mycenaean, particularly as known as well, the Minoan complexes, mm. they're really community centres, I, I, not really palaces. But they, they do get called they palaces. They call palaces, yeah. but they're actually community centres or gathering places. Mm. Now, here you have all the same elements. It's a place where people gather to establish their status, paying taxes. This yeah. is very clear. There's even a, a stone which illustrates this at Phaistos. Knossos and the great bull courts, not only were they places where uh, everybody sorted out status, paid their taxes, where the goods of, and the wealth of the country was mm. gathered in, mm. the performances, including yeah. the bull dances, mm. again, established that this was a risky moment mm. at which everything could be broken on and remade. Yeah. And I think that possibly is, the, in essence, is what the bull dancing was mm. about. But I think it goes back even further. I was... Um, Thinking about uh, somewhere like Gobekli Tepe, which I've talked about quite a, a lot, in eastern Turkey, and I know I've put information up about it and I will do so again, mm. but Gobekli Tepe is said to be the first place where people gather together. It predates cities yeah. and it could be as much as 12,000 years old. Yeah. And it is an incredible, incredible site with, mm. with wonderful carvings and structures that look positively modern. Yeah, yeah. But it... These places, like Gobekli Tepe, have been described as the world's first temples. Yeah. Where it's said to prove that people gathered together to worship their gods mm. before they'd even moved into cities. Yeah. Well, this actually makes no sense to mm. me. Now, I know that archaeologists mostly use the word temple in the classical sense, yeah. not in the modern sense of church, yeah. in that ancient Greek and Roman or classical Greek and Roman temples they were the banks mm -hmm. they were the places people gathered they gathered to talk they gathered to chat they gathered to interact they gathered to celebrate they gathered to make a lot of noise yes and, and also to make money and to trade like, that's where the first <laughs> yeah. vending machines were yeah you put your coin you got out your holy water yeah. and so forth. <laughs> but they were complexes and mm. community centers mm. in, in the way that we're talking about but they had the, the the religion was the gods were still at their centre. Mm. Now it struck me that with somewhere like Gobekli Tepe, why would people need to gather together? Mm. Their first needs are for trading yeah. to swap things, mm -hmm. and that actually includes swapping wives. It does. <laughs> I have to say that it's not yeah. just trade goods; it's also swapping wives. Now, mm. when a lot of disparate families, tribes, groups get together, mm. there's a huge danger of conflict. Oh God! Yeah. Different customs, different procedures coming together mm. and uh, the opportunities for basically fighting mm. and killing each other are quite high yeah and there would have been a huge need for ceremony mm. to make this a safe place yeah yeah you know to keep the outside out and this is a this is a set aside mm. which means it's a sacred place mm. to undertake trading yeah now after a while, you would have had people who became skilled and who were who stood in place to make sure that this didn't happen. Yes. And at that point, you are developing religious 
ceremonies mm. and also the sort of prohibitions mm -hmm. and the kind of the rules and obligations that go along with this sort of separate space and time you know in order to get things done so then the whole community needs to agree that for this time and in this place we don't fight or we don't commit we won't get much trading trading yeah. done if we kill each other yeah basically. or or if we keep stealing each other's things yeah. so you can see how that then develops into a kind of a common set of rules and observances yeah. so starting out from looking at the rules of the oina i'm beginning to extrapolate that humankind's first desire to trade mm. brought about religious yeah. observance and, uh, and ceremony yeah not the other way around exactly. they didn't gather to worship and then worry about it let's swap a few things mm. i don't think people work that way no so these places really i feel temples is a very very misleading term it is and i mean we, we had the same problem with the the complex at orkney which is so extraordinary being automatically described as a, a temple again there's a tendency within archaeology is like we don't know what this thing is it was obviously something of religious significance you know um so it's sort of a default way of speaking about things in archaeological yeah. and terms though i do understand that it's using the term well, certainly the pre-reformation church mm. in england was uh, also a place of gathering of mm. chatting of talking of swapping things and yeah and of, of court cases and yeah. uh, yes you know, all of that all that all those social necessities so the pre-reformation church served the same purpose as your classical temple mm. where the the magic if you like mm. the religious bit went on in secret mm. when nobody saw yeah other than just the priests yeah it goes back to ancient egypt rome or, uh, or the pre-reformation mm. church mm. but it's still misleading mm, because i'm not sure that religion was the initial drive yeah, yeah i think people are much more concerned about how can we swap enough food to keep us eating yeah and how can we swap my wives to keep our societies growing healthy yeah. and uh, that, that in a way religion gets imposed on top of that afterwards yeah to yeah. keep it a safe space exactly it's, it's sort of a bit of a cart before horse thing and this is so clear in the oinok this is exactly what's happening mm. trade is first and foremost yeah and from then comes the need for status and ceremonies exactly or status setting and ceremony ceremony yeah. Yeah, and in fact, we've looked a couple of times at the wonderful Danyanika's poem on Carmen because it gives such a detailed account of what goes on at an Oinuk. It has all of those sort of rules and strictures, you know, that you these are the things that you cannot do during the fair at Carmen. Mm. And these are the things that are proper to happen on each day of the fair, you know. And so you can see how just having to regulate getting a lot of people together in one place could develop into a superstructure, if you like, of religious observance. The Fera Carmen, the poem, gives us so much insight into what the Irish Oinux were like up to quite a late date, and comparatively it really speaking. It doesn't happen that it takes on a strongly religious context in the Irish Oinux. No, not so much. That's what I find interesting. Yeah. I can see all this stuff that comes from the Bronze Age or before, mm. and here, in this example of the Irish Oinot, mm. you've still got the pure form. Yeah, yeah. With all those clear uh, prohibitions mm. and clear admonishments for what will happen if the sacred space isn't kept. Yeah. But it's still not place of worship mm. it's for trading exactly and sorting out the status of the people it's, mm. it's choir again it is again it's and it's all about that kind of re-establishment of core through status and through yeah. the, the whole tax return wealth declaration thing not only with a place like carmen where the entire sort of dinhenicus if you like is about the fair that happened there and how important it was and there are plenty of sites around the country around ireland that have a specific 
uh, relationship to an oinuk. I mean, there's plenty spoken about the fairs of Tara and so on. Uh, but there's also things like Nina, which is the county town for North Tip. The name of it is on oinuk. So it means the fair. So that would have been a local Oinach place. But we then have a place like Evan Maka itself, you know, where this whole story of Maka and about her having to appear at an Oinach then also is about establishing this place of Navan Fort, which obviously mm. was an important Oinach. I mean, Evan Maka is usually given as, if you like, the royal seat of mm-hmm. Ulster. And once again, these are so often just the principal gathering places. Mm, mm. And so we have the whole idea of Oinuk is completely ingrained in the whole idea of the place, Edwin Marker. Mm, mm. And in fact, as we talked about in the original podcast episode, the site today called Navan Fort mm. is an interesting and curious place. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. I, I talked a lot about the Iron Age archaeology of it on, mm. the, on the, in the podcast and it's so worth visiting. If you're too far away, we would put on the blog a link to a new site, mm. which is almost a virtual visit. It's oh, a it's lovely wonderful. site. Yeah. And it also uh, includes something I didn't really talk about, which was the its earlier Bronze Age roots. Mm. So, yeah, again, this is a very ancient site. But it's nice to know that since we've started doing these series, that more resources have become available, and particularly online resources, um, which really give so much more of a rich understanding and context yeah. for what it is we're talking about. I mean, the Orkney site that mm. we were talking about has a wonderful website, yeah. which, again, you can look at day-to-day Mm. finds the dig diaries and virtual visits exactly yeah there's plenty of information about it because it's not always a very easy place to get to certainly not (laughs) and of course there's the link to Corleone yeah and in terms of the archaeology we when we were talking about it in the original episode and this very odd iron age story the creation of a huge roundhouse Mm. which was built burnt and buried yeah. within a hundred years. Exactly, which is just so odd and so peculiar. But because it has wood involved with it, and of course wood gives us the most wonderful precise dating material, we've mentioned in other later episodes how the timing of that building yeah. of the roundhouse is very close to the timing of the building of the trackway it's at Corley. contemporary, I think. Exactly, yeah. So there was obviously something kind of odd and interesting happening in Ireland at that time. This what we call the Iron Age mystery. Yeah. Now, uh, there was, on that site that I was talking about just now, there was mention that around the the Iron Age period, mm. and I know that's over a few hundred years either way, mm. but around that time, agriculture, which mm. had been widespread in Bronze Age times mm. around uh, Navenfort, fell off mm. and the woods came back yeah. as if the population had dropped considerably mm. and farming was no longer being undertaken mm. and this kind of suggests that there was at least the area was under pressure mm. or um, the humans living on it were under great pressure mm. and it makes me wonder this sort of memory of an ancient curse on the place mm. could have created this need to propitiate or um, at least offer something back to the land, mm. which could have caused this very strange approach. The building 
burning and burying yeah. of this unique site. Mm. Is the Mucker story, in a way, the reason that this was undertaken? Now, this mm. is entirely speculative, it but is. there is, nevertheless, a curse attached to the place mm. where this unique thing happened. And, of course, when we were talking about Corley in terms of the story of Mither and Aideen, there's a very close relationship between the building of the trackway and the whole story of Mither and Aideen. So it may be that what we have both in Evermacher and in Corley is perhaps that a population that was under pressure, there might have been famine or disease or some kind of yeah. drop in population that meant people were trying to say, okay, how can we reenact these stories which give us a reason or a meaning. There's, there's also been the suggestion that they were trying to imitate mm. a Neolithic cairn. Yes. And that has found to be true up in Orkney. Yes. There, there were, one was found where they created a, a, an Iron Age copy of, mm. a, of a Neolithic cairn, only they thought that you went in from the top because yeah. that was the only way they'd ever been in. Exactly. And you could get this nostalgia happening mm. here. There has been suggested that this is the archaeology of nostalgia. Yeah. That people who were looking back to an earlier age when things were right, when yeah. Coir was still there, exactly, still yes. present in the land, yeah. but in some ways the land had become a wasteland and, mm. and the curse had to be dealt with. Yeah, yeah. This again is just speculation, mm. but it's built on evidence. Yes. As we found with our revisit to Shinnan, Dinyanicus is at the heart of this story and has been one of our great guiding lights all the way through it. And All hail the Dinyanicus. Absolutely, and of course one of the delightful things about Dinyanicus is that you get more than one story. You know, you get more than one version about how something came to be. Um, but Dinyanicus as a kind of a, a sense of the story of a place, it has a, a deeper root Funnily enough, in some of the Lavragavola strand, mm -hmm. um, particularly where we get Maka as a consort to Nevid, and we talk in the episode about this uh, sort of connection between the Nevid as a place or a person of learning, but a set aside place, and then the Maka as a, the pasture for raising. Garden gardens was, I exactly, think, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you know that thing about the sort of garden and pasture, the heart of civilization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which allows a civilization to develop. So I still really quite like that, and I think mm. that that idea of a story of personages called Nevid and Maka is also a story of how land use develops and how mm. that then influences society. And you're winning if you've got land for horses. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That shows that you've made it, that you've done it right. That your pasture is of good enough quality. Mm. And that you can set aside the space for learning. You know, yeah, the, yeah. those are kind of, they're markers of success, if yeah. you like. So what do you think about her role as a war goddess i mean we, we she's not that we said that in yeah. the episode and and it is it is tricky you know um i wondered whether it might be related to you know she appears very briefly in the story of moitura and in that i don't know if it's in that or in another telling where she's given as like a wife of Nuada. Um, and she just appears on the battlefield and then dies. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's that. Um, but that seems to be her only kind of direct relationship to war, to conflict. That term, the acorn crops, yeah, has Mark really been grabbed by people. Yeah, but I, I, my feeling is that that's a, that's a glossary term. I think so. And we've learned down the years to, to deeply mistrust the glossaries. <laughs> Trust the Dinyanicus, yeah. distrust the glossaries. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there was another thing, actually, that we didn't necessarily pick up on the first time that we did this story of Maka which is the uh, that at one point
point she's given as the daughter of Mither. Mm. Now, with Mither, as we've come to know... What is owed is due. Exactly. And so the fact that a daughter of Mither, Maka, gets, you know, completely betrayed, that yeah, what is due to her yeah. is definitely not given, yeah. you know, and she gives far too much. So it's this kind of fundamental disruption of court. And I think that where that links back to this glossary idea of a battle goddess is that the story of Maka, it's like the first disruption or betrayal of Kord that will gather momentum until you reach the utter entropy oh, and destruction the of the Great War, the Toynbow yeah, Cunha. Yeah. And so it might be that kind of association that it's like it's the primary cause, if you like, the original cause that ends up with this end of the world story of the Toynbow Cunha. So it might be that, but I don't know. I think it's just because both medieval and modern uh, analysts have always tried to fit in Irish mythological personages with classical uh, pantheons, mm -hmm. you know. That's just a, a bad way to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, there's no correlation, basically. Exactly, yeah. It's been great having a look back at this episode and it's perhaps worth saying that we are going to finally bite the bullet. We've been circling closer and closer to the time. We will do a series about This is that. our next series. So it once is. we've finished uh, this revisited yeah. uh, Mythical Women, yeah. we're actually going to circle the toy a little yeah. more closely and do more than just the Forschkelter. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So that's the story of the naming of Arwen Maka and it's told by Cromcrew himself. It's a story that comes from the Ulster cycle rather than the mythological cycle, but that seems to be an artificial way of seeing it. For me, they feel like a sort of Iron Age story rather than a Bronze Age story. But maybe you could put it into a better context. Well, it's certainly a story about agricultural people who have settled. It's not a nomadic people. There aren't the great wild forests that you might find in the Fenian kind of hunting stories. We are talking about a story that reflects that kind of society and that development in society into being settled communities who then work the land as farmers and uh, start to have local kings. It's more about the settlement of the land than the creation of the land itself. It's all about conspicuous wealth. It's about the production of wealth and how important that settlement and uh, agriculture is that they can then support if you like, an, an upper class, an aristocratic ruling class. Social status is becoming something that really matters. Absolutely. And the means of displaying or acknowledging or proving your social status then comes with conspicuous wealth, accounting for uh, your property and your production. So we're really dealing with legal status now, isn't it? It's the source of the development of the really quite sophisticated early Irish legal system, which goes hand in hand with the complex social status. Essentially, the reason that Irish law was well developed is because they wanted a system whereby you could compare the material wealth of, uh, let's say, a farmer 
like mm -hmm. Kronkhu, with the non-material wealth of a poet or a judge or someone whose contribution to the social order was not so easily tangible. And this was all done with binding social contracts? It meant that your exact social status was important because uh, it was a way of equating the strong farmer with the chief poet and the middling farmer with the middling poet and so on, that you needed to be able to equate those different levels in very different ways of life. Certainly then that had an impact on uh, the kind of legal contracts that you were able to go into and whether someone else had legal priority over you so that their word was more important than yours when it came to binding into a contract or swearing an oath. And of course we are talking about a, well I don't like the term pre-literate, but certainly these things were not written down initially and so the actual both demonstrating of wealth and speaking of contracts became very important. At this time, with all this showing of wealth, the importance of the oral contract, social status, you get this character Maka, this amazing woman who turns out of nowhere, won't allow anyone to say her name, and then races horses. Definitely a supernatural character. Now she turns up more than once, doesn't she? First of all, there's the story in the Levagavola. The Book of Invasions. Book of Invasions. I love that one. It's supposed to be the Book of the Invasions of Ireland. It's supposed to be the Five Invasions. And it depends whether you count whether there's five or six. So we call it the approximately five and a half invasions of Ireland. Yeah. Each of these group of peoples turns up out of the blue and uh, they clear plains and they dig wells and then they all promptly die of plague or disappear. Really, if you like, they're the creation stories of Ireland. And fascinating. And we could talk a lot more about those. But the third one, someone called Never arrives. Yeah, Never leads the third group of people who supposedly come to colonise Ireland. He's supposed to have uh, cleared 12 planes. We're not talking about airports here. No, no <laughs> aeroplanes, thank you very much, none of that. Never's wife is named as Macha in that, and she's Macha, daughter of Oid Ruad. Red flame. Red flame. Never's a really interesting word because it means either a sort of sacred enclosure, a place set apart for a special purpose. You said to me it was often learning. The, the term Nevid as well seems to have been understood to indicate a person who was the chief poet or the most learned, like a term of distinction was Nevid. So it's both the place of learning and the person of learning as well. And the enclosure set aside for civilization, if you like. Yeah, a garden. A garden, yeah. Uh, a place of organization, and yet Maka's name is seems to be connected with pasture. It does. I don't have all the linguistic evidence for this, but the best guess from my point of view is that, yes, Maka is associated with terms for pasture, which gives us with this third group of people, we have the enclosure of separate space for culture and then you have Maka as the pasture which raises livestock. This third settlement of Ireland now not only includes management of land but it also includes the, uh, the cultivation and the culture and we have Never de Maka who represent the garth and the pasture. I find that fascinating. Mind you, you've got to remember, it's no good looking for family trees in all of this. They're more like attributions than anything else. The name Maka comes up and you can trace the character 
similarities, but in one text she'll be said to be a daughter of Mither, of Breleth, in another text she'll be said to be daughter of Eithruid. In one she's the wife of Neveth, in the other she's a wife of Nuada. Doesn't really matter, does it? It, it tells doesn't. you about what she's doing at that time. It's not the relationships, it's the attributions. Yes. You can't see them as a single human person in that sense, why we're talking about characters here. Because, of course, in that story in the Book of Invasions with Neveth, uh, Macha dies, and she's buried in the plain of Armagh, Ardvacha, which is said to be one of those uh, 12 plains created by Neveth. And yet she appears again, whole and hale and hearty, to come to Crunhu in the story that we heard at the beginning. Oh, of course, she appears again at the Great Battle of Moitura as the wife of Nuada of the Silver Hand. Another great story. She fights a great battle against Balor, yeah. the evil eye, and is killed by him. It's a great part of the story, but it's just a passing role, isn't it? It is. It's only really as part of the innumerable millions and trillions who were supposedly slaughtered. Oh, as many of the stars as the sky. Exactly. And grains of sand on a beach and what have you. So often you find when you look up about Maka or you want to look up in a dictionary of Celtic personages, she's always described as, oh, she's a war goddess. The warriors who are killed, the heads of the warriors, are said to be Mecca's acorn crop, as numerous as the acorns on a tree. Mm. And so she often gets listed as a war goddess, mm. which seems a bit strange for someone whose name probably means pasture. Well, quite. And in terms of the stories around Maka herself, rather than an appearance in a glossary which says Maka's acorn crop or listing her as a goddess. I think that this one in my tour is probably the only time... The only time she gets involved in a battle. Exactly. And even then, it's not a separate story. She's one of the notable personages who gets killed. Yeah, Maitura. before the final confrontation between yeah. Lu and Balor. Yeah. And that seems to have coloured her whole reputation yeah. as a goddess of battle. Let's go on to the main story, mm. the story of the naming of Owen Maka, because mm. I think this one's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I started my story with Crumb uh, Crew and mm. he's an interesting character himself I mean he's just there in passing in the story he's the one she comes to mm. but he's not so insignificant he would seem to stand for a notable person within the society at the time notable farmer strong farmer I love the term the strong farmer it's one that a lot of Irish people I think would still recognize possibly Boara which literally means cow lord I like that the yeah. Irish cowboys or rancheros <laughs> That's somebody whose wealth is very obvious and conspicuous in terms of you can actually count his cows and you know just yeah. how wealthy he is. So it suggests that cattle were kind of important at this period. Well, they were more than important. They were actually the basis of the currency system in early Irish society. The most common unit of currency was shades, which mean a jewel or a gem. It was a fraction of the value of a milking heifer. All currency was translated into shade based on the value of a cow. So really, mm -hmm. rather than a gold standard, we had a cow, cow standard. standard. Sounds about right, the yeah. cow standard of Ireland. So when this woman comes out of the blue, she's not coming to a minor character, she's coming to an important aristocrat. He's not right at the top there. And for example, he's not so wealthy that her appearance and her influence doesn't increase his wealth and of course within that society your wealth had to be sustainable you weren't going to get a promotion on the social ladder if you just made a quick buck your wealth actually had to last through to your grandchildren in order for you to get a social promotion the coming of the woman is interesting because in so many stories you get someone who seeks for wealth i gather his wife had died hadn't she that's how the story opens yes is that Kronku was doing rather 
well and his wife had borne children but then she died and that he was very lonely. There's an implication in the story in the text of the Noin the Nullad that it's not proper for him to be on his own and that he should take another wife. Some of this comes from his children indeed. There is something that's off kilter, if you like, about a mature and a wealthy man not having a wife. And then she comes, unexpected, she comes in silence, and I love the part where she just comes into his house and does all the right things very quietly. Yeah, she, she doesn't even really speak that we know of in this first part of the story. She does just appear out of the blue one day and just comes into Kronku's home as if she had always been there. It does specify that she turns to the right, she turns deshel or clockwise, and it says that twice, which suggests it's important, but she just arrives one day, gets everybody fed, makes herself at home in the pantry. Yeah, and puts the children to bed. Yeah, puts the children to bed, and then before she herself retires, that's when she turns right handwise a second time, and then she goes under Krunku's blanket and puts her hand on his side, which for some reason is a phrase that always really sticks with me. Then they lie together that night and she becomes pregnant. And this is before her name has been spoken. This is really before she has said anything. She just arrives and does everything that is fitting and right to do. Yeah, she's bringing quiet, mm. order, the rightness, the yeah. correctness. Yeah. It doesn't need stating. It's almost like that Egyptian marked, the truth, that makes the world work, makes culture work, makes society work. Yeah, the things that have just always been done. It's actually quite lovely. Mm. But this emphasis on that he must not talk of her, he yeah. must not speak of her, surely that runs counter to the boasting, the display. I find it interesting that this is something that mustn't be spoken of. Yeah. It does definitely reek of taboo or of gesh, whereby she can only stay as long as her name is not spoken. That kind of gives us an indication, first of all, of her supernatural heritage. But there's another issue there around the social rightness and, if you like, natural order of the running of a household and of prosperity. But then kind of on top of that, you have a legal system. And, of course, at a time when an oral contract is important, people's names are also very important because their names must be publicly stated in order to bind them into a contract. And that includes the contract of marriage, which doesn't happen in this story. No, and if her name's not spoken, then she can't be part of that contract. Exactly. She can't be part of that legally bound socially strictured world. Well, and for anybody who's out there who's read Terry Pratchett's uh, We Free Men, it seems to be... Have you read a bit? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> if you can't write the name down, then yeah. you can't have power over them. But we know about the power of names. Yeah. And this is certainly part of it, that although she, she will come of her own accord and she will bring order and rightness and prosperity, she won't be part of if you like, our human artifices of legality. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And then, of course, comes the fair, the gathering, assembly. Now, these were more than just, oh, uh, a local entertainment or anything like this. There were more even than the marts and probably more than the ploughing championships. The term is oinach, which literally means agreement, not even parliament. It's the time for everybody to be in the one place, essentially. As well as being, obviously, a time for entertainment and boozing and celebration. Also, if you like, it was the census for the area so that 
every household could be enumerated and declared and it yeah. was the time for your income tax that's right for paying the tax so you had to go to the central place and pay your taxes but it would also set a pecking order if you have these systems whereby you can if you like climb a rung on the social ladder if an improvement in the family's wealth or prosperity has been sustained over a few generations so you need to be able to count that prosperity you need to be able to enumerate and you're going to announce wealth. it as well aren't you well, you're going yeah. to show it off well you need to declare it this is why it's it's more like income tax you need to declare what your wealth is so that it can be compared with previous declarations mind you in the stories they always seem to want to make the most of it whereas we want to say keep it down to a reasonable amount in mm. those days it seemed to be the more you said the more you got well absolutely <laughs> Because again, if you did have all that wealth, then you were essentially in line for promotion. In my story, I set the story at Samhain yes. uh, at the end of October. I was basing it on some of the other stories. This happens after harvest. We've no proof that this was set at October. Mm. It could be at any time, although a lot of tellings of the stories name the king of at this gathering as Crohor or Cunchover in Old Irish. The king is not named in the Noin Danullad, which is the Old Irish text version. He becomes comes Crohor or Conchover because it's in Ulster and it's a king. That's the well-known king of the Irish exactly. uh, Ulster cycle, isn't Same it? way as every head of the Fianna becomes a Fionn. I think there's a certain irony, a sort of natural order in setting it at Samhain. After all, in Ireland, we still have to have our tax returns in by the end of October. So we get to the main part of the story now, the challenge. Crumhru, he suddenly boasts that his wife can race the king's horses. When it's put in those terms, it does seem rather foolhardy. Unless you go back to what we were just saying about your tax returns. Yeah, it's a bit odd, isn't it? Great horses, they're magnificent, but my wife could run faster than your horses. Yeah. It's a bit like that, my dad can do more than yeah. your dad. Yeah. But there's more to it here. There is, and particularly since uh, his prosperity has grown, and so he has to account for that at the fair. He gets into a situation where there are competing obligations, that she's laid an obligation on him not to speak of her, but his social and economic duty at the fair is to actually uh, name her and say what she has contributed to his wealth. He's suddenly in that awful bind which if you're taking part in any kind of an Irish saga or mythological tale, you should always be careful when you find yourself being pulled in two different directions by two obligations, because that just spells disaster. So she's, in a way, laid a guess on him? Effectively. It's not named as such, but given her clearly supernatural origins and given that we know who she is and that she does specifically tell him not to speak of her, they might as well say that she puts him under gash. So he's really in an impossible position. Exactly. He either has to fake his tax returns yeah. or risk losing her. Yeah. yeah, he's facing either tax fraud or separation or divorce or oh, however tough, you want to put it. It is. It's, it's a real bind. And in the context of the fair, he chooses to speak of her because she's played such an important role in his prosperity. This bit feels like a very human story. Yeah, it really is being pulled both ways by, if you like, a public obligation and a private promise. That's the bind he's in. And so he does end up breaking his promise to her. Once you break a promise in the old stories, if a guess is broken, it escalates. Yeah. It's always going to cause problems. Mind you, the way that Cahur, or the unnamed king of the original story, acts is a bit weird. Okay, so he's angry. He's cross because somebody has said, your horses, they're great, but my wife could do better than that. His reaction's a bit over the top. It is, and it's disproportionate because essentially he demands that this boast be demonstrated. And what's more, the penalty for not demonstrating it is death. Now, 
for a start, there really is no death penalty within the actual old Irish legal system. No, that's system. an odd one, isn't it? He and should be forced to pay a price. The fact that he's threatened with death and that the king demands a literal demonstration of his wife's prowess, that's actually where the real damage is done. So the king gets so mad he asks for something absurd. He asks for the impossible. He's not behaving as the duly elected king which is what we're, we're dealing with a kind of a semi-democracy in the Greek sense. Heads of strong well, they're not clans. kings actually, they're not kings. Yeah. This word king is a misnomer in it, a way. It is in a way we don't have a good English name for it. Essentially he has gone beyond what you would expect from someone in that position. He becomes, if you like, an, an absolute ruler. He becomes a tyrant yeah, in and that moment. And what's more, he's made a bad judgement. In the Irish stories, no leader ever gets away with a bad judgement. If he's false, then his kingdom is false. It's the same way, which is hard for those of us who have disabilities and ailments these days, that, you know, a blemished king could not retain his position so when Nuada lost his hand he couldn't be king anymore but there is this very strong symbolic relationship between both the truth and integrity and health of the person that is ruler and the integrity and health of the land. He is not a divine ruler. No. He is a representation of the health of the land. Yes. I think this is a bit of a misunderstanding. They could be taken down very easily, these kings. But nevertheless, if they were not true, yes. then the land wasn't true. Yeah. And that reflected on the whole of the tour, the people. Yeah, the it? health of the whole small state. He definitely overreacts. It's hard to relate a story with mythic elements to the way that people would have experienced their lives but given the context of the original audience for this story that would have been way over the Well time. he doesn't just ask a woman to come and race a team of horses not just one horse which is absurd yeah. he also then sees very clearly that the woman is about to give birth yes and yet he still demands she run and she asks three times three times when the men come to get her she says I am near my time. It is not right that I should be asked to do this. And each time the death threat to Kunku is repeated. So she very clearly states that what's happening is not right. But in order to save Kunku's life, which shouldn't be forfeit for something so trivial. He is, in fact, saying one of you is going to die. Yeah. It is a bad judgment. Yes. Isn't there even something more important in the way that he refuses to listen to her? There is an awful lot made of the status of women in old Irish society. Now, it was not an egalitarian society by any stretch of the imagination. But there were certain times when a woman's word was final in legal terms. And one of the times when a woman's oath which again is the legal contract, could not be oversworn, was anything that she swore in the process of giving birth. <laughs> so, in other words, whatever she says while she's in that condition, it's got to be true, because it's not in her interest to lie. It reminds me of a story long ago where a friend of mine said that her mother said that uh, she vowed she would call the child the first thing that came into her head while she was in childbirth. Oh when she first saw the baby, she all she thought of was beetroot. Yes. <laughs> and they had to call in the Catholic priest to absolve her of a vow. <laughs> Otherwise, she was going to call the child beetroot. So you see, it goes yeah, on today. Exactly. So she has to run yeah. and do the impossible. Yes. But you've got this overlay of this supernatural ability mm. 
over the top of a bad judgment. Yes. You've got this supernatural overlaying a really very human story. Yes. People will probably know the story of the Arthurian wasteland. Mm -hmm. But there's a much uh, older story called The Lady of the Fountain in the Welsh mythological cycle where the golden cups of the ladies of the fountains are stolen and this causes a wasteland. And once again, it, it's the abuse of either women or the symbols of the women, the fertility mm. of the land, because mm. in those stories, the women and the wells represent yeah. fertility of the land. And when that is stolen mm -hmm. or taken away or raped in that case, the land becomes a wasteland. And there's a feeling that this is the same sort of story. It is in common with the story of the Lady of the Fountain. The disruption of order is what will bring the land down. Now, when Macha finishes her race against the horses, which she succeeds in doing, that's the supernatural mm -hmm. element. And it's when she then lies down and gives birth that she speaks her curse against the people of Ulster. Because a woman's word during childbirth cannot be countermanded, like you say, it can't be unspoken, it means that the curse that she says, the Ulstermen will find themselves debilitated in times of great need, that then has to come true. Because whatever the woman says while she's giving birth mm. must be true. And the king has condemned his people to disadvantage. For generations. For generations. When I would have looked at this story before, I would have, if you like, placed the blame on Krunku for breaking his vow of secrecy to Macha. But in fact, it's the king in the story who brings about the destruction of his own kingdom. Which makes it a wasteland story. It is. Although, in many ways, it also throws up issues of the treatment of women. However important, it's actually yeah. not the prime meaning of the story. It's not the beginning and end of it. It's one of the stories that is very difficult, as, if you like, a modern human woman, it's very difficult to read or hear the story without feeling that compassion and without feeling that there is definitely a message here about mistreating mm. actual human women. Yeah, but women. she's already doing the impossible. If she'd been a human woman asked to race a horse, which was impossible, yeah. that would be an story yeah. of abuse. Exactly. But because she is already a supernatural woman, we're yes. being told that's not the point. Exactly, yeah. It's not putting aside the issues, but yeah. that's not the point of the yeah. story. Yeah. The bit about the dark child and the light child, I'm afraid that was just poetic interpretation. There's nothing to say that one was a dark child and one was a light. I chose to see it as almost like the blessing of fame and the curse of weakness. But she puts a noinden of weakness on them. That word noinden, I think, is quite a tricky one. It's been a bit controversial, all right, especially when it comes to naming the tale, because the general name that's accepted is noinden ullud, which is the noinden of the Ulster people. It's often taken as uh, nine days. And this thing of what a noinden is, yeah. there was a feeling that it might be noisen, which is a word for a baby, but it's not actually the word that's used for a newborn baby. I know I said earlier it was lelop, because I love that word, which a is a word for, for a baby. Word for baby is lelop. Lelop. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. But in fact, the, the newborn, so what Macha would have held in her arms as she declaimed the Ulsterman, would have been referred to as clan which is the same word we use in modern Irish for family. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in modern Irish, you still say a gumper clina, carrying family is the way to describe a pregnant woman. She's a gumper clina. Oh, that's lovely. Which is yeah. lovely, yeah. yeah. And it, it has the same root as the Latin planda, so it's the same as a plant. The word doesn't really apply specifically to children or to infants or childbirth, that noinden word. So it doesn't mean a confinement. There's a lot made of that the Ulsterman will be as weak as women, in, women childbirth. in childbirth. Yeah. Or would suffer the confinement. Yes. The other word that's used is kes. There's kes ullad as well. That's the debility of the Ulsterman, which is, if you like, that's the result. That can mean almost depression 
Kes can mean that kind of sadness and that lack of energy. Um, but the nine then, it certainly seems to have nine in there. Nine is definitely an element. The ending, it's not necessarily days, but it does refer to time. And when you have nine plus time plus a woman who's giving birth, that just screams nine months to me. It's also interesting that you get nine times nine or nine times eternal. Yeah. That nine, once you add more to it, can often mean forever. Exactly. It's like a year and a day. Specifically the time related to the Ulsterman's debility, I would favour a nine-month period mm-hmm. of debility but the only kind of safe translation if you like for nine then would be niner so for a niner for a niner there is a reference in some of the dinhenicus tellings that it will go for nine or nine times nine generations when the proclaiming of the debility that Macha does it's almost the first time she speaks she has three times said don't race me against the horses it's not right and that just gets overridden three times and then at that point that she's giving birth mm. she proclaims that this debility will come on the Ulsterman. So this is where we actually see who she is. So Maka giving birth, she dies. But what about the babies? The name of the place means the twins of Maka. It does. Everyone means twins. So Evan Maka is the twins of Twins Maka. of Maka. And yet there's a curious absence of the story. There's one of the Dinhyanika stories does give them names, which are fear and feel which means something like, well, fear is truth and feel is loyalty or honour. But really, they're kind of inconsequential. What's important is that she gave birth, that there was two of them, and that that gave the place its name. However, there is a curious folk version of the story that comes from County Galway, whereby a woman in her heavy pregnancy races against horses and then gives birth. And in the County Galway, version that is a birth of Cuchulain. It's connected Cuchulain who was the one person who was in fact not not subject affected. to the non den of the Men of Ulster. Yes, but it also points us to the literary version of the conception and birth of Cuchulain. That's a story that concerns Cruchor, Cuncover, two pronunciations for the same yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. And his daughter in that version of the story going into the other world, having been led there by birds, and then there's a big snow, and they overnight in a house where there's a man and a woman, and the woman is giving birth and Ektra helps with the birth and fosters the child. We will come back to that story another time. The important bit here is that in the same night, a mare gives birth to twin foals in the same household. And in the morning, while all the other world dwellings and so on are gone, what is left behind is this other world baby and the two foals, which are then raised and become Cúchalans, two mm. chariot horses, one of whom is called Liamacha. But there's another story that's an even closer parallel. But this one comes from the Welsh Mabinogion, and it's the story of Rhiannon. Now, she is a wonderful otherworld goddess. She's first met by Puch, who wants an adventure, and he stands on a hill and gives the three shouts of challenge, which turns up in other stories over here as well. He sees her riding past on a horse, but he cannot keep up with her and her horse. Until finally he says to her, just won't you stop? She said, yes, and better would it have been for your horse had you asked me earlier. They get together, and when she has a child, the night of the child's birth, the child is stolen away, and her ladies are so scared that they put blood around her mouth, and she is accused of having eaten her or destroyed her own child. Well, her punishment, she's set to be a horse. She is set to carry visitors from the mounting post 
to the hall and that's her job. Now meanwhile in another part of the same country there is a strong farmer, much the same sort of person as Krumperu, who has a wonderful horse who foals every May Eve, but each May Eve the new foal is stolen away, so he sets to watch and eventually he sees a monstrous arm come through the window and he cuts off the arm and there in its place is the foal and also a baby, a boy of about four years old. Well they bring up the child as his own and this child turns out to be the lost son of Rhiannon and when they're united she names him Pryderi which means care. But that seems to be a very close parallel. Particularly the two seemingly contradictory elements in those two stories is that for both Rhiannon and Macha they're forced to behave as a horse and this seems to be either a punishment or a belittling, something wrong that way. Yeah, but it's actually giving their true nature, isn't it's it? It's actually showing up who they are. When you follow the trail, as it were, of their children, you find horses there all the time. So really what we have here is a mythical woman who is sometimes a horse and mm. shares of the nature of a horse. Mm. I think that's what's important. And with Macha, when we go back to thinking about her name as a pasture land, of course, the highest status stock that you can raise on pasture in these climates is a horse. Mm. And so it's like the richest pasture. That which produces the best horses. Yes. It's not so much supernatural mm. as this wonderful metaphor mm. for the way for your land to be most productive, to mm. have the most prosperity and mm. most wealth. But isn't there another version? Of the Evanmacher? Yes. yes. There is. What I enjoy about reading a text like the Metrical Dinhenicus is that the poets can put together two really quite different stories both purporting to be the origin of the name and there's contradictions within those stories if you think of it in, in terms of a history rather than a story but the poets had no problem listing them alongside. So alongside this story of Evwen Macha and its naming that we've just heard, they go on to talk of another one. And this is about Macha Mungruad. She's known as Macha of the Red Mane or the Red Hair. This is the Macha who, like the wife of Mevid, is a daughter of Oid Ruad, the Red Flame. Red or... Flame. In this story, what's lovely is that they tell us that Macha was also called Grian, the sun, mm. and that her dwelling was in the West. All of these very bright, fertile images, really nothing to do with any kind of battle goddess. In this case, how does Owen Macha get its name? Well, we have another one of these uh, stories that's full of characters with difficult names, like the Five Sons of Dithurva. But <laughs> essentially, there is a land dispute and Macha is the daughter of one of the noblemen who has entitlement to these lands and she won't give up her claim to it to the male folk who are the other inheritors. So it's interesting it's a woman saying I have the right to this land. Exactly. I have the right to sovereignty. In essence the crux of it as a, a naming story is that she says that she will take the land that she can encircle using her brooch pin. So she takes the pin off her cloak and inscribes a circle in the land and that is how Evan Macha is built. The brooch pin of Macha. They use a bit of synthetic etymology here and this is where you find it coming up in places like Cormac's glossary. They say that Evan, even though they know that Evan means twin, that's not an obscure term even in the time of the, the glossaries, but they do this synthetic etymology. They play with the word and they say Evan is Eo Mwyn. And of course, Mwyn 
uh, in modern Irish, Mwinnail, is the neck. So they say it's the brooch at her neck. And that's how it gets to be called the neck brooch, if you like, or neck pin of Macha, Eowyn Macha. Kind of word play on that. But anyone who's familiar with some of the Irish stories that are taught us in, in school and what have you know the story of Bridget claiming land by laying her cloak down on the ground and that the cloak covers this huge pasturage. So she manages to get a good parcel of land out of the menfolk. And here we have Macha taking the pin from her cloak and using that to inscribe land that she then has entitlement to mm. in perpetuity. It's an interesting variant. We end up with Maka as naming this place, but also it is the beginning of the end. A story of how she lays a curse for the lack of pity, and therefore the land is cursed, and it actually begins the whole story of the toy. It does. It's kind of the first stone in the avalanche, and you will find the story of Macha and Evan Macha, or the Nine Danulad, you'll find that listed as one of the Fushkelta for the time. So it's oh. one of the ten stories that you have to tell before you can even start. Yeah. The Toynbal Kuna, which is a very, very long story, which is the greatest stories of Cahullan and Maeve and Eilil and the two bulls. And yeah. It's far too long to tell now. It's actually one you can find very easily. It's it, a, is. it is a great story. But it all begins with the story of Maka. It does. And what's interesting is that uh, compared to other stories, this is a story of entropy of heroic tragedy. Terrible, really. When she curses the men of Ulster, when she curses the place where all these stories are set, the whole story from then on is downhill. It is, but remember that the setup is of Maka coming unbidden, the pasture bringing with it a good order of well-husbanded land. The promises to her are broken, so that order is disregarded and disrespected and that's the first step on the road to the dissolution of every kind of order every kind of social structure every right way to do things essentially the town and all of its fushkelta is one huge counterexample of how, how not, not to, to run a country, country. <laughs> how not to do things it's a series of broken promises and a story of betrayal i always think about it as a story on the cusp of things it feels like a change in the relationship to the land sovereignty arising from the relationship with the land changing to the possession of territory or is this unfair or too fanciful i think it's certainly there i mean within just the story of Macha herself that we've gone through you do see the competing attitudes the one of the gentle order that can't be legally bound that is the abundance given by the land itself when it's tended for and cared for and ordered as opposed to the tyranny of the king who is only interested in possessions and then ultimately the whole point, the Catherine itself, is begun with a comparison of possessions between Maeve and Alil. You've moved away from wealth coming from a good, healthy relationship with the land around you and turning into vying for territory, for assets and for mm. possession. It does show a change in that relationship and the corresponding changes in social structure. Mm. And the way that it culminates in the town, we probably are 
looking at a reflection of the end of a way of life. That's the end of the story of Maka, but there is one more little twist to the story, is if you look at the real place of Awamaka, known now as Navan Fort, up in County Armagh, archaeologically it's a very, very interesting place and well worth visiting and we'll try and make sure that some of the details about the archaeology of the place are on the blog. It was built in a very short time and was built up as, a, if you like, a great big roundhouse divided into sections which over a hundred years were completed with different types of soil and stones from different areas of Ireland. It was roof, then it was burnt, just burnt down, and then it was buried. And that's what's under the hill of Awamaka. It is a very strange story indeed archaeologically and absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I think that possibly is the biggest mystery of them all. Maka still has a few mysteries to uncover. When you start to understand that rather than being, if you like, a bringer of destruction, that her true form is bringing prosperity and order and that the destruction only comes because of that being disrupted. That puts her well away from any notion of being a battle goddess. She certainly is not that. Yeah. A figure of the pasture mm. and the sun on the pasture yeah. and the prosperity of the gift of the horses, the garth and the garden. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Agalaf Manegas, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson, and as all the Obolicon Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>